Hello everyone and welcome back again to the SciComm Toolkit podcast. This is the show for scientists and researchers to get all the tools and inspiration they need to boost their SciComm confidence. I'm Soph, I am a scientist turned science communicator and I will be your host. Now I don't know what it is but every time that I do that first line of the episode saying this is the show blah 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 I always want to say what Ant and Dex say at the start of their show, Saturday Night Takeaway. That's the only thing that really goes through my head when I'm doing it. So one day, if I do end up saying, this is a show that says, don't just watch the adverts, win them, then yeah, you know where I'm going wrong. So anyone who doesn't know who Ant and Dex are, I'm sorry, that will probably make no sense whatsoever. But today I wanted to start talking about presentation skills. This is something that we all have to do so many times in one form or another during our lives. I myself personally have done research presentations throughout my PhD. I now do a lot of career type presentations talking about how I moved from academia into science communication. I also do a lot of presentations just on science communication topics like storytelling or Instagram and so on. And I hated doing presentations. I used to get so incredibly nervous before doing one that it's now kind of ironic that the whole reason I got into science communication was because of a presentation. That was the three minute thesis competition for anyone who hasn't heard my kind of origin story before. But presentation skills is something everyone is going to need. And I think there is so much more that we can do with presenting, especially when it comes to research topics and science communication. So today's guest is the wonderful Duncan Yellowlees. And we had a fabulous chat just scratching the surface about presentations. And I swear every time I do this, I get worse and worse and worse at cutting down and trimming these interviews because there is just so much that I want to put in them. Everything that all my guests have said is is just magical and it's information and advice and knowledge, expertise that I just want to share with you. So what I've done with Duncan's interview today is I have literally just cut it in half and you'll get the other tips in a bonus episode very soon because yeah it was all just so good and I know I say that every time at the start of these interview episodes but it's just so true. There's just so much knowledge that I want to pass from my guests to you. So in today's episode, we talk about the basics, the first building blocks of presentations. We talk about using stories and characters and emotions, and also the power of a pause for presentations. There is also the best time-saving tip I have ever heard for making presentations in this episode as well. So please do stick around for all of this incredible advice. I'm going to stop rambling on and let you hear from the man himself. So it is my pleasure to introduce you to Duncan Yellowlees. Oh, and also watch out for an extra special intro and outro in this episode too. (laughs) 
Good afternoon and welcome to the SciComm Toolkit podcast with your host Sophie Arthur and guest speaker Duncan Yellowlees. We hope you enjoy the show and do subscribe and write in and let us know how you are getting along. Amazing. There you no, go. You can just slightly give a weird little, like, like that was more of a 50s American kind of, hey, yeah. we're going to have some rock and roll. Let's have a look at <laughs> Buddy Holly in the charts now kind of thing rather than the 1920s. But it felt better. Yeah. It felt better. The it toolkit felt podcast. It felt Very right. Good. I feel like I now need like an applause, like um soundtrack to go after yes. it. <laughs> but like really bad canned laughter after it. It was really good. Uh, anyway. Let's, anyway, ask let's... me some stuff. <laughs> um, I kind of wanted this to be a little bit more stripped back. We'll go a little bit more back to basics. Give some people introductions, tips they can start thinking of to hopefully grow their confidence up to radio voice <laughs> so the big picture question to start with and ask you is what makes a good presentation so what do you what do you want your end goal to be and I'm sure there are a million and one different answers that you could give to this <laughs> yeah there are a million and one different answers but actually kind of fundamentally they come down to the end goal needs to be decided by the speaker Mm-hmm. So so a good presentation is one that does its job. And and that's where your million and one different answers comes in, because there are a million and one different things you can try and do with a presentation from, uh, you know, informing people or entertaining people or educating people or inspiring people or motivating people to action or a whole bunch of different stuff you can do, you know, as catharsis for yourself to exercise your own demons. Um, whatever it is, I think uh, the best presenters work out what the point of it is before they before they start. Mm-hmm. And then you build your presentation and your talk in such a way to give you the best possible chance of achieving that. Now, because fundamentally what we're trying to do is have an impact on an audience. It's very, that's, you can't guarantee that all audiences or everybody in the audience is going to experience the same thing or indeed the thing you want them to experience. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a a kind of guessing game, but you try and stack the cards, I guess, as much in favor as possible for your point of your talk. So if you're doing an informational-based presentation and you want people to learn a specific thing or go away with a specific piece of knowledge, you use techniques and structures that give the greatest chance that a greatest number of your audience is going to get that information and, and take it away. Similarly, if you're doing a kind of more entertainment thing, uh, you want the the greatest chance that the greatest number of your audience is going to be entertained and enjoy it. The best presentations are the ones that succeed in whatever it is they are set out to succeed. That's a sort of a non-answer, but actually that's where it all starts. And, and nobody can tell you what a presentation is supposed to do apart from you, the person doing the presentation. I have had moments where I ask people, you know, what's the point of a presentation? And someone says to get credit. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's happened in, in training sessions. Um, but also I think it's uh, particularly in academia, which is largely where I work, uh, working with researchers to work on their presentations and their comms. It's a really overlooked tool in that uh, promotion public engagement career progression kind of thing mm-hmm. because you get the chance to stand up and talk to you know you go to a conference and there's 100 people in the audience uh, you write a paper and five people read it uh, yeah. so the kind of reach you can get with presentations and even more so online now is is really big and I think part of my job is encouraging uh, academics and researchers to see it as that opportunity and and see it as a chance to do something, whether it's to promote themselves or ask for collaborations or um, kind of whatever they want to do, get funding or or motivate people to go and read that paper. So more than five people read your paper. 
Uh, and there's often in academia, particularly inter-academia, so not public engagement or SciComm stuff, but conferences, there's mm -hmm. a, a self-promotional aspect to it, which I think people shy away from, but it's really worth worth bearing in mind. And uh, and yeah, similarly in SciComm and, and public engagement, it's that you've got to think about what you're trying to do with, with it, right? What's... What is science? I'm sure you covered this before. What does science communication mean? What does public engagement mean? What are you trying to achieve? And there are, you know, there are a million different flavors of that. And, and what works for one group of people doesn't work for others. And the only way to succeed is to sit down and think about your purpose, because otherwise you get to the end and you go, well, I had a good time, but was that the point? Yeah. Or, or you know, they they learned a bunch of stuff, but everyone looked miserable. Well, was that the point or not the point? Mm. And it's kind of a, an interesting balance. Yeah. Yeah, it always goes back to that why and um, capturing your audience's attention, which you would want to do right at the beginning of your talk, ideally, but you also want to maintain it throughout. And I'm assuming a big thing that you would use here is hooks. So what types of hooks can you use or what techniques can you use to grab your audiences and maintain your audience's attention in your presentations? There's lots of different stuff. Um, I enjoy that you mentioned using hooks at the start and all the way through. <laughs> Go you, Sophie. Um, lots of people think about hooks as just a thing that you have at the start, but they are particularly useful at starts. So when you're in a finished a chunk or finished a section and you, you want to restart again and, and bring people back. So there's a couple that are very easy to do and lots of speakers already use, but it can be uh, can feel a bit difficult if you're not used to thinking about that sort of thing. Um, one is questions. Asking questions is a very, very simple hook. Uh, rhetorical questions usually at the start because questions with answers slow a presentation down and slow the pace of things down. Mm -hmm. Rhetorical questions or easy yes, no, hands up, hands down sort of questions keep the pace up. But what the, the effect they have on the audience is they make they force the audience to actively think about a thing. Imagine, oh, have you ever seen, Sophie, have you ever seen a pink hippopotamus? No, I don't think I have. Are you now trying to think about what a pink hippopotamus might look like? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So, so uh, a question like that forces your audience to kind of engage with the concept. Um, it makes them think about the thing you want them thinking about. Mm -hmm. So, for example, at the start of a lot of my training sessions, I will ask something like, uh, what percentage of presentations are actually really good? Like, really good. Yeah, I wouldn't say that number was very high at all. <laughs> no, it usually comes in somewhere between 10 and 30 as an average across all of the researchers I talk to. But that starts my sessions with my audience thinking about presentations, thinking about all the rubbish presentations they've seen, thinking about the great presentations they've seen and kind of going, huh, I want to be the great one or I don't want to be the rubbish one. Mm -hmm. And that gives them a motivation to listen to everything else I'm saying. Yeah, or even indeed ask themselves why they think that particular presentation wasn't so good or what made that one so great exactly so they're there so i use a question to help kind of uh, get us all on the same train tracks line everybody up nobody is thinking about what they're going to have for dinner anymore nobody's wondering about twitter nobody's thinking about that cool conversation they had in the breakout room just before mm -hmm. they're thinking about the thing i want to thinking about so questions are really useful for that the other one that i talk about quite a lot is uh, is what i call the tedx opening mm -hmm. um so every ted talk kind of starts I'm going to tell you how you can change the world. Uh, every single one of them starts like that. And we're a bit bored of it now because we don't really believe it. But a little bit of your brain goes, ah, I don't believe you. But you know what? Bring it on. Yeah. Uh, let's go. I'm up for this. Let's see what you've got. Um, and this is the kind of the 
big statement, the bold statement, the attention grabbing, a little bit different kind of statement. Um, I was working with a, a climate researcher, climate change kind of researcher the other day, looking at the kind of opening lines and stuff they could use. And they came up with the the kind of concept that global warming is going to increase the Earth's atmosphere by 0.3 of a percent, which sort of <laughs> this is a really interesting example because it kind of doesn't work because 0.3 is a very small number. And, and so people don't really think it is. Whereas if you went in and said in the next 20 years, 70% of the ice caps are going to be gone. Mm-hmm. Or sea levels are going to rise by three meters. Or my climate science is terrible. Don't take these numbers as in any way scientific. <laughs> making them up. Um, but you, the kind of big bold statement that you start with. So there's the kind of the surprising statistic, the shocking number, the the kind of bold opening. And again, both of these, the question and the bold statement opening, are about creating curiosity and the best hooks create curiosity so you can do some some beautiful visual hooks uh when i'm training if we go back to training live ever i have a beach ball uh that i take to training sessions and uh, we throw around the lecture theater or wherever i am and it gets kind of bounced around the class and with no explanation at all just while everybody's filtering in uh that's a hook in itself it's a physical prop but everyone's looking at it kind of going what the hell is this <laughs> what is this man doing <laughs> yeah what is what is this guy i thought we were here for an academic training session what what is this nonsense and as such it creates a bit of curiosity so those two things are two ways to get curiosity but fundamentally what you're trying to do is get your audience to stop thinking about lunch and start thinking about oh i wonder where this is going i want to learn a little bit more i'm intrigued i'm curious uh, maybe I'm entertained and that kind of stuff is really useful. And one of the interesting things about hooks and openings is one of the things that absolutely doesn't create any curiosity at all is, hello, my name is Duncan. I work at this institution and my supervisors are this person, this person, this, and my research is funded by all of these people who have logos. Look at the logo. <laughs> <clears throat> the opening that everybody does um, is really crap at generating curiosity. And so you've got the first minute and 30 seconds of your talk where your audience is bored. So, yeah, that curiosity opening is really good. But you wanted to talk about um, keeping curiosity going. Yeah. So in I talk a lot about storytelling in various ways and forms and how we can steal stuff from the world of professional storytelling to use in presentations to create more engaged kind of audiences and stuff. And one of the things that stories use really well to create that ongoing curiosity, that ongoing engagement is conflict. Uh, There's a phrase in theater that says uh, conflict, conflict, that's not a word, conflict (laughs) equals drama. Uh, And when I used to direct on, on stage, um, I, Back in my student days, I directed quite a lot of shows and we took stuff to the Edinburgh Fringe and that kind of thing. And they've got a fantastic, fabulous book that talks about if a scene just feels dull or flat or boring on stage, um, it's usually because the drama is small and that's usually because the conflict is small. And the way it describes it is character A wants something from character B and character B does not want to give it to them. And that will create drama and the more the characters want and don't want the more drama there is uh, so the story uh, Sophie really wants an ice cream and she goes down the shop to get an ice cream that's kind of a boring story 
but the Sophie, the, the Sophie, the story, <laughs> Sophie really, really wants an ice cream. It's 30 degrees outside. It's so sunny. She needs to cool down. It's a nightmare. And she wants to go to the shop to get an ice cream. So she gets up and she goes out to the shop and she has to navigate loads of roadworks that are in the way and she gets there and the shop is shut. Oh, that's like devastating. <laughs> right, It's devastating. But also you're sitting there going, well, what the hell is Sophie going to do next? Um, and like that I'd probably sit down on the curb and cry. <laughs> <laughs> or you're going to go on a big mission, right, to find the only uh, shop yeah, in, in, in the town that has an ice cream. And that, uh, so the more, the, the greater the kind of emotional um, risk, I guess, or, or jeopardy of you not getting an ice cream or how much you want an ice cream and the, the more things get in your way, the greater the tension and the greater the curiosity of the audience in terms of wanting to know how this ends. So creating drama and creating tension, that push and pull, fundamentally gives you a curiosity throughout your talk or your story or whatever you're doing, which is the audience wants to know what happens next. And that's the kind of key. They want to know where this is going or what's happening. It's a really interesting one to kind of play with and to, to fool around with, particularly in academic type talks where often people jump straight to the results. Uh, so one of the structures I teach is problem, struggle, result. And in, in the problem, we set up the problem, whatever it might be, climate change or curing cancer or the way monks in the 17th century understood river paths, uh, whatever the problem is. And then we have the struggle and that's the work that's doing the struggle. And then you have the results. But the only reason I'm interested in the results is because I've come to care about the problem and care about what the end result of the struggle is going to be. And that's one of the things people miss is that no one cares about the results of science unless they care about the why of the science and the problem and the struggle and what's been going on. The results themselves really don't interest lots of people. And I think a lot of researchers, because the researchers do care about the results, right? Because mm -hmm. they're in the struggle. It's the thing they care most passionately about. They forget their audience maybe doesn't quite care about the same stuff they do. So building that tension, building that struggle, finding moments of conflict or push and pull in your presentation is a really nice one for keeping curiosity going. Yeah, and like this all sounds like fantastic. I feel really engaged and like it seems really cinematic and dramatic. But if I was thinking about how I would have applied this to, say, my PhD research talks that I'm just doing as like our monthly seminars or whatever, like my results are just say, oh, I've like removed one protein and a different protein went up and the actual big picture results of it are kind of I don't know, 10 years down the track after a million more experiments have been done so although I kind of know what the big picture is and we're working towards it how can I then apply what is my very basic fundamental research which is basically just a protein going up in like increasing its levels how do I apply that to like the hooks how do I connect the two? Or do we just need to revolutionize the way we do presentations in science? Well, yes, that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but also, no, you're right, particularly with um, the uh, something very technical, particularly in the physical sciences, you've got some sort of like proteins going up and down, um, very specific, very niche, very small. Mm -hmm. um, and as you say, you're, you know, this work maybe won't have that much of an impact on its own but it's a small cog next to another small cog next to another small cog which means in 10 years time maybe we get i was talking to somebody the other day who studies graphene and uh, we were talking about how you do this and they they went yeah and in 20 years time and loads more research maybe we get invisibility cloaks wow 
Yeah. And, and that, wow, right? That's what you're looking for. And you, and, and it doesn't matter to a public audience particularly whether we're talking right now when you finish your PhD mm-hmm. or we're talking in 10 years' time where your small cog is connected with all the other small cogs, all the other PhDs and bits of research. That's about connecting your focused small niche thing to a wider world and I think people lose sight or don't think that if they're if they're at a big remove from that wider world don't think that they can use it as a hook and a connection but actually you can um, particularly with public audiences with uh, more specific audiences like you were saying kind of going in a in a a lab meeting and giving Mm -hmm. an update on what you've been doing one of the things you can do is lots of things you do one of the things you can do is invest it with your own personal jeopardy right so what did it mean to you when this protein went up mm-hmm. after how many countless nights in the lab trying to get things to work and, and experiments not working and things failing and samples going off i don't i didn't do biology at all i don't know i'm presuming samples <laughs> go off um, right so you can invest you can get them to come with you on the emotional journey and, and this in the grand scheme of things this little blip of a protein going up and down might be a tiny tiny thing but actually in terms of how well you slept that night um it might be a huge thing so you can invest the science with your own personal kind of journey and story and jeopardy and, you know, come back to the lab meeting next month and get the next installment of Sophie Battles for Proteins. Um, <laughs> uh, and and there is, there's levels to all of this. You know, some people, a question I often get is, uh, all of this dramatic stuff sounds great and fun and silly. It's fantastic, Duncan. But, you know, we're scientists. We've got to be sciencey, mm-hmm. uh, which I would somewhat disagree with. But the institutions that scientists work in, uh, often would look down upon a slightly more uh, dramatic or engaging or public engagement type approach to a lab meeting, for example. Yeah. Um, and so if you, you think about it kind of as a spectrum, whereas on, on one end, you've got a very informational, here's the facts, here's what happened. It's very dry. It's not that interesting, perhaps, for your audience to listen to, but they get the gist. And at the other end, you've got Lord of the Rings or, you know, Sophie Battles the Proteins um, in, in kind of kick-ass style sort of <laughs> headgear. And rational here is the protein, is the graph, right? Graph on one end, Sophie Battles the Proteins, the comic book on the other end. Every audience is different. Every presentation is different. And it's up to you to decide where on that spectrum, where on that path you need to sit for this audience to have the best experience. And if an audience wants... Uh, just the facts and the information and if you go too far down the comic book funsies time they're going to be put off then draw it back a little bit and do much a slightly drier version of the same thing um but you should always side more towards the engaging and interesting stuff if you're slightly unsure if you really like if you're talking to a, a bunch of people who just want to see the graph then just do the graph which again goes back to knowing what your audience wants to get out of what you're trying to tell them Exactly, exactly. If it doesn't suit your purpose to, to talk about Sophie versus the proteins, then it doesn't, that's not going to help, right? So you won't, you know, even if you do the best, most amazing and interesting dramatic talk about Sophie's battle with the proteins and you're like, oh, this is great, I'm on fire. If your audience is sitting there and they've gone, Sophie's completely lost their mind. <laughs> or, you know, you're sitting there and your Viva council is looking at you going, what? Uh, then, <laughs> then the presentation hasn't worked. Because it's not about you and how you've done it. It's about your audience and what they've experienced and whether or not you've managed to get them to the place you want to get them to. 
So there's different um, like story structures. Well, the one you mentioned earlier was problem, struggle, result. Are there any kind of other structures we could look at to see if our research would fit into those particular ones? Oh, bazillions. Uh, yeah, loads and loads and loads. One of, there's a couple that I really like. Uh, one that's really good for research, for actually touching on a lot of the stuff we've talked about, taking those ideas of uh, tension that we've talked about and curiosity that we've talked about. It's called the mountain. Uh, and if you imagine you're stood at the bottom of a mountain and at the top of the mountain, that's the goal. That's where we need to get to. Now, when you're, when you're reporting on a project or talking about your research, it's very tempting to talk as if it's a flat line and go, I set out to do some research. I did some work. We did some experiments and we solved the problem. <laughs> it's very tempting to, to do that flat line story. Uh, trouble is, nobody believes you. <laughs> yeah because <laughs> no research it ever doesn't happen like yeah, exactly um or if that is what happened clearly it wasn't a very difficult problem and so your achievement is not that great mm -hmm. um so whereas if you think about it as a as the mountain right so we're down at the bottom of the mountain up the top of the mountain is the is the the goal and you set off up up, up the mountain uh and uh, you know a third of the way up there's a struggle there's a cliff you have to scale to overcome it or there's something blocking your path that you have to go around and um and you have to rethink your strategy a bit you maybe have to bring in some expertise from outside you have to go home and go for a walk and clear your head and come up with some innovative new solution or you just have to battle through it or whatever it is to get to that next stage up up the mountain and then you keep going up the mountain and then you hit another little peak when i draw this it's uh so it's not a flat line from the top to the bottom it's these little spikes these little mm -hmm. peaks going up the thing to represent these challenges these difficulties along the way and and sometimes when i've talked to researchers they love this metaphor and i've gone yeah and then sometimes you're halfway up and realize that you're climbing the wrong mountain and you have to go back down and go and climb this other mountain over there or you get lost in a crevasse and you miss the main picture or you go all the way through the mountain come out the other side and have to turn around again um and i think that's a really it's a really useful metaphor for reporting on a project how a thing went through time right so we set out to solve this goal this is what we did Turns out we had to solve this problem first, and then this one, and then this one. This is the way Netflix gets you. This is mm -hmm. the way, what's the current series of choice? Um, I guess we've just finished Loki. Uh, no spoilers. I haven't seen it yet. Okay, yeah, no spoilers. But, no spoilers, right. Was there any point where you were sitting there and you watched two episodes in a row, three episodes in a row, four? Um, or are you very religious and just do one episode at a time? Did you watch well, it as it came out? I, I would have watched it all in one go if I could have done, but because we just watched it each day. But I think there was another series I watched a while ago that was called The Bold Type, which I think I just binge watched about three seasons in the weekend or something Whoa. like that. <laughs> uh, that's quite hardcore. Uh, he says, having just finished Grey's Anatomy, and there's a million seasons <laughs> of Grey's Anatomy, and it's it's kind of awful, but really compelling. Um we watched all about the Queen's Gambit was a classic that lots of people, oh, yes. I think, completely binged. And so this is what Netflix does. It lays it out that there's a big problem that has to come up. So, you know, um, the fate of the main character in the Queen's Gambit, how are they going to survive? What's going on? Are they? What's this whole chess storyline that's going on? How far are they going to go? That's the big story. And you're invested in that. You're curious about what happens next. Uh, and then each episode has its own little sub story its own little peak its own little challenge its own little thing that keeps you engrossed in that episode and is kind of satisfying when you finish the episode um 
and then the, the character starts again in the next episode and get this little peek. And that's so that's how binge watching gets you is each episode is inherently satisfying um and you keep watching because you're still invested in the big thing series i find like vikings we watched the first three seasons or something of vikings Mm -hmm. and then got a bit bored and the main story was still interesting and compelling the big story but what was happening in each episode was no longer interesting so the 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 hooks the little hooks within each episode became less interesting so we we got bored you know the the long-term curiosity isn't enough to sustain you so i really like that mountain structure for doing a reporting on a project because it lets you tell a non-flatline story which lets you emphasize that there were other struggles along the way uh so this is a this is quite a big achievement right getting all the way up to the top of this mountain because there's been loads of stuff trying to stop you and loads of hindrances Mm -hmm. it lets you show off how clever you've been right or ingenious or humble or teamworky or whatever it is to, to solve these various challenges um and if you lay out the problem, right, we, you know, if you, you're talking about it and you lay out that, describe the top of the mountain where you want to get to in such a way or the problem you want to solve in such a way that the audience still cares about that, then they're going to be every little setback. They're kind of like, oh, no, Sophie's failed to get to the ice cream shop. <laughs> um, uh, you know, how, or, or there's roadworks in the way. Is Sophie going to get an ice cream? I don't know. There's roadworks in the way. How is Sophie going to overcome the roadworks? She leapt like a gazelle. Um, over the, I don't know where that image came from. Um, <laughs> yeah, I definitely would not be doing that. <laughs> That's not me. <laughs> not you. Okay, cool. Um, but the so can you see what I mean that the little Absolutely, peaks yeah. keep the curiosity going so I really like that as an academic structure and it doesn't they don't have to be massive big storytellings once upon a time Lord of the Rings they can just be acknowledgements of the smaller challenges uh, and painting a little bit of those details along the way uh, gives you yeah this chance to paint a more realistic picture show off a bit because you sold them challenges and also make your achievement look that bit better. Yeah, I think every communicator I've spoken to on this podcast already and in the wider world, um, they all talk about stories and storytelling. So I think we could probably do a whole podcast itself on stories. And there's so many components to stories and such. But there's kind of three things that I kind of want to talk about a little bit more and how we can use them for presenting our science. And they're kind of characters, emotions and then pauses when you're actually talking. So don't, how can how can we use those to our advantage for a research presentation? So characters is a really great one. Um, one of the best things that characters let you do is they are a really useful thing in helping find stories. Mm. So one of the things that I run into with um, particularly science researchers is, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just, it's my protein going up and down. Where's the story? Yeah. Um, and... There's a couple of things to do do with that. And the first one is go looking for people um, or things that could be people. So you're, you could anthropomorphize your protein mm-hmm. going up and down. And you can talk about your protein, kind of give put people stuff on your protein. Um, and once you've done that, you kind of identify all the people. And there's you, obviously, and then there's... Uh, other researchers you work with, there's people you're gonna, your research is going to have an impact on. Maybe there's patients if you're working in the medical thing. There's industry people. There are folks, people in the history of your subject, people who did the research before you. Maybe mm-hmm. there's famous people who came up with whatever it is in the history. So there's people all over the place. Science is done by people and it impacts people. Um, and then on top of that, you've got this kind of metaphors of treating non-people things like people to get us to understand them or get us to care about them a bit more. So there's all these possible characters. 
you've got this big list or this big mind map of possible characters and then go through them and think about so the three favorite characters my three favorite characters from traditional storytelling there's lots and as you said Sophie it's a huge topic and if mm-hmm. people are interested in this go a googling go a googling see what You'll you can be there find a long time <laughs> yeah there's loads of stuff out there so the three characters I really like and I talk about are hero mm-hmm. uh, heroes have to do something that's what heroes do right because that's what heroes do big marvel <laughs> fan sorry um <laughs> thor ragnarok being a fantastic film uh yeah. but heroes have to go and achieve something right they need to go and do x y or z and usually they go on some sort of a journey and they grow and change and that's the classic hero cycle structure but heroes have to go and do something so you can look down your list of people and go who here was trying to achieve something or what here was trying to achieve something again, thinking about, you know, I've, I've, I've seen speakers anthropomorphize genes and things going to do stuff. And depending on your, how strict you are, some science communicators don't like anthropomorphizing non sciencey mm-hmm. things because, you know, a protein can't want anything. They just, they just do stuff. So yeah. you, maybe you want to be careful with your language, depending what style of cycle you want to go in for. Um, then you've got villains and villains are great. Villains essentially, get in the way of the hero or the other way around the hero gets in the way of the villain doing something so these are these are your two primary forces that clash that give you conflict um that give you some sort of attention to play with so the hero's got to go and do something villains get in the way and you can look around at your hero and go right this hero is trying to do something what stuff or what people or what other things are getting in the way of this hero and that will give you the starting nub of a story it'll give you the starting seed of I could tell the story about how this hero tried to go and do something or this uh, molecule is trying to achieve something or the virus is trying to, to make it you know, relevant to 2021, the way viruses <laughs> mutate. What are they trying to achieve when they mutate? What is it evolution is prompting them to do? What is it that gets in the way of that? What's your immune system doing to combat that? You can then look at what the villain is doing and, and who the villains are or what the villains are and what gets in their way. And that challenges gives you that uh, a mountain structure and a gives you lots of those sort of moments that you can refer to in tension and conflict and use that to tell a, a story and generate curiosity. My third favorite character is the magical helper. So the magical helper does two things. Uh, they help and they are magical. Amazing. <laughs> I know, it's <laughs> mind boggling. Um, uh, but fundamentally, so this is Yoda and Gandalf, other folk who are, aren't the hero. Uh, but help the hero do whatever the hero needs to do, uh, the genie in Aladdin. And they usually have magical powers or expert knowledge or expert skills, stuff the hero doesn't have or doesn't have yet. Uh, you know, the wise old sages passing down their skills to the hero, but the hero has to learn to do it properly. And mm-hmm. Those kind of characters. Um, and so essentially what you're doing is you've got this big list of people involved in your work and you've slotted them into, do they fit in any of these character boxes? And there are lots of other characters you can go online and find. And that gives you the start of a little bit of a story that you could start using or the start of a little anecdote or a little tension that maybe wasn't obvious before that you could bring into your talk just to give that little spike of engagement or that little bit more kind of interest. How then, we've talked about characters, how can we use emotions? We've talked about my um, disastrous attempt to try and get ice cream at the moment. Oh, it's the (laughs) traumatic and awful attempt to get ice cream. Um, which you'll never believe I made up on the spot. Uh... <laughs> well, it seems like every day to me at the moment. I'm like, I just just another tub of ice cream, please. Just, just <laughs> some more stuff. That would be great. Yeah. 
so emotions are one of the biggest and most powerful tools we as presenters have to use. There's lots of different ways to use them. Um, one of the ones that I think academic speakers particularly can really benefit from learning is by bringing your emotional self to your talks. So in academia, a lot of the status quo, I guess, the habits that you're taught when you are, are learning academia, and particularly science, is that science is cold and distant and rational and mm -hmm. emotionless. And the facts speak for themselves. Uh, and that may be so. That may be the case for papers where people need to completely replicate accurately your experiments so they can test your results. Not that anybody does, but that is, in theory, the point of papers. Well, it makes for great papers, but it makes for crap presentations. Your audience is more interested in human beings than they are in anything else on the planet. They don't want to see somebody on a stage or an event who is a research robot who is literally just reeling off their paper. Yeah. Or reeling off the thing. And I've seen this before, and I think it doesn't help that in academic conferences it's called presenting your paper. Uh, and mm. I've seen people literally read out oh, no. their paper. Um, and uh, and what happens is you get these kind of very robotic, here's the facts, here's the figures, and the audience goes, oh, yes, very interesting, very good. And then we walk out, and that talk um, it has not really done anything or had any sort of impact. But if you bring what your audience wants to see is a human being on the stage, a human being that cares about the work and is passionate about it and, and gets frustrated when shit goes wrong. You know, they want to see that you care. They want to see that you are confident and that you are interested in your subject. A reason that authenticity in some of our in communication is really valuable. You see it on Twitter an awful lot. People who are on Twitter um, as their authentic selves or what seems to be their authentic selves mm -hmm. are uh, do much better than people who are there obviously not being their authentic selves. Human beings connect with other human beings. And that's the thing that makes talks really, really, really powerful. So bring your emotions to your talk. Know the emotional intent behind stuff, right? Is, you know, your protein went up, Sophie. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Mm -hmm. I've seen so many academic talks where they'll be like, the protein went up. And I'm sitting there going, and <laughs> how am I supposed to feel about the protein going up? Tell me, give me some direction. Um, and, and so you want to go through your talk and find the emotional intent behind stuff. How do you want your audience to feel at different points in time and project that at them? If you want your audience to be happy, be happy about stuff. If you want them to take things really seriously, be serious. If you want them to be excited, be excited. If you want them to question, kind of question. Um, and that emotional intent drives body language and vocal change and facial expression and a whole bunch of other things which create an engaging presentation and engaging performance. And it's a, it's a slightly tricky thing to get into, particularly if you are used to the academic way of emotion has no place here, let's just be robots. Mm -hmm. um, but when you do start to be able to do it, you will feel much more comfortable, much more authentically you. I've had countless conversations with researchers who say that they get up at conferences and feel like they have to present in a certain way, a particularly formal way, a particularly scientific way, and that this makes them not feel like themselves. Um, and, and you're never going to do a good presentation if you don't feel like yourself. So, or you don't feel comfortable with what you're doing. So bringing yourself to your talks um, and guiding your audience through the emotions they're supposed to be feeling, right? Give them a bit of an up and down, a bit of an emotional journey here. Uh, and that is going to be a, a really, really good thing. 
so yeah, that's one way to use emotions. And there's, there's lots of different ways um, from, from storytelling and connecting people via emotions and, and various other bits and pieces. But that one, I really like that emotional intent and bringing, bringing your passion, right? Nobody does a PhD or research if you don't care. It's four years of slog, five years of slog. Yeah, it, at least three. So. Exactly. <laughs> at least three. It's often unrewarding. It's often relentless. The culture is messed up in many many ways mm -hmm. people don't do it if they don't care um, and if you bring that care and share it with an audience on a stage your audience will engage and then what about the power of pauses and I suppose that's then going into pacing and things like that yeah so pauses are fabulous pauses although less so online interestingly because if you just go quiet online everybody thinks your microphone has stopped yeah everyone uh, goes panic mode <laughs> yeah everyone goes can you anybody else not hear them um but what pauses do so pauses do a, a whole bunch of stuff but pauses before a point so if i go uh, the most important thing i want to say today today sophie is this this is the point that pause creates a tiny moment of ooh, what's it gonna say uh, and it also lets your audience stop processing whatever it is they've, you know, your audience processes your words a fraction of a second behind when you say them. So by adding that pause in, you let them kind of catch up and get ready to hear the next bit with a, with a fully clear brain, as it were. Yeah, and I also think when I was doing my presenting, I always felt that I almost needed to fill that gap because otherwise I would look like I didn't know what I was talking about either. Yeah, uh, there's... So there's an interesting difference in types of pauses. Um, there's the, oh God, I don't know what I'm going to say next and everything's gone horribly wrong and I'm going to die and I'm so embarrassed pause. <laughs> uh, you don't want that one. <laughs> Ideally not. Um, Ideally not. Um, but it's pretty easy to, so one of the fun things about presenting is it doesn't really matter what you're feeling. Um, it's what the audience sees and what they think you're feeling that matters. Mm. Um, because it's not about you, it's about the audience. And that panicky pause isn't great but if you can turn it into an expectant pause this is me pausing because i deliberately wanted to pause and i'm gonna stay here until you all shut up and listen teachers sometimes do this as a, like a shut up and be quiet technique right they just sit there looking at the site class in dead silence and very slowly everybody goes what the hell is going on with teacher and everybody shuts up and sits there. um and you can kind of do the same thing not for half an hour or 50 minutes or however long it takes a class of 10 you know year 10 to shut up but um having that expectant pause if you find I want to tell you something and I bring my voice down and my pace slower I want to make a real point about this it's very difficult for your audience not to kind of lean in um they want to know what's going to happen next and you've lowered your voice you made it slightly harder for them to hear what's going to happen next and so they go what's going on what's this why is this focus it's so small and so focused i want to join in and see what this thing over here is um so it's a kind of it's playing with focus with your voice going quiet go quiet and go focused rather than going quiet and panicky which is the i don't know what i'm doing silence go quiet and go focused and your audience will want to know what the focus is on they want to know what's going to happen next. And when done well live, you can physically see audiences leaning forwards, uh, which is quite a feeling. It's that, that moment wow. where you're on the stage and you go, I've got them. I've really, really got them. In the palm it, of my hand. <laughs> exactly. And it doesn't happen very often. Um, but when you do, when you do feel it, it's, it's really quite good. Um, so pauses, I think, are great. The other thing that pauses space, that pauses are really useful for is 
vocal ticks. So the ums, the ers, the okays, the oh, what the oh, the, um, and this is your brain going, what the hell are we saying next? Uh, <laughs> I've run out of words. I don't know what's next. Um, and your brain just kind of goes, ah, ah, oh, it's this thing. That's fine. Um, but that ah moment feels like years, mm -hmm. uh, which is a quirk of the way you process information when your adrenaline is high and you're flooded with adrenaline, we process information faster. So time, our perception of time slows down. So stuff seems to take longer. Um, and so when you pause, you're going, oh God, I've been quiet forever. Yeah. I clearly think I'm an idiot and I don't know anything. And then you go, um, um, uh, um. Now that pause isn't actually very long. The um, uh, uh pause is not very long. It's a fraction of a second. The audience doesn't notice it unless you say um. um <laughs> so, so the trick, I just did one there. The trick is once you become aware of it, you get really paranoid about it and check it every time. It's not, lots of people get really focused on it, but unless it's so bad, your audiences are distracted. We used to play um bingo in my undergraduate class where we count oh, how many no. times I um, said um and you know, see which, which class had the highest score. And so that's bad. Most of the time it's kind of all right. And it actually gives your speaking and your language a more natural pace and a natural cadence. So don't stress it too much. But if you do find that you're doing it a lot, the thing to practice is silence. The thing to practice is not vocalizing that mental hiccup where your brain is trying to work out what comes next. Because you will work it out. You'll be fine. And it won't last as long as you think it will. And you just take that moment to pause. So I'm being quite conscious now about not just running my mouth off but using those pauses, those silences where perhaps instinctively I would say, um, to gather myself, just don't vocalize it. The next words that come out will be fine. Uh, there you go. As long as I run out of it, I stop concentrating. But um, yeah, so that's, there's various uses of pauses for drawing people in, for, for resetting their brains before a point and to practice not vocalizing the mental hiccups that can make you seem more nervous than perhaps you are. Yeah, I feel now very conscious about what I'm saying and I have to try not to say um now. <laughs> I just, like I feel like I need to redo like every talk I've ever done with like I need to just start from scratch again and do it a whole different way. Do it how Duncan says. <laughs> I teach all of these techniques. I teach storytelling, I teach body language and vocal use and slide design and how not to be crap at, you know, any of that. But fundamentally the thing that I want people to start doing more of is thinking. Because if you, you know, preliminarily I work with researchers, these are clever people. If they paused and stopped and thought, right, what am I trying to achieve? Who is my audience? What is the best thing to do at this point in the talk to get me closer to my goal? They would come up with all this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you would go, this is my audience. This is the start. What do I need to do at the start? I need to get them interested, right? Let's do some sort of question or hook or, or something to get them curious and get them started. It's not... Presentation skills is not rocket science uh, for me. I think it's about pausing and taking your time and thinking from an audience perspective. What's going to make this talk work for the people in front of me and be a good experience for the people in front of me? And if you start there, a lot of the other stuff will come kind of naturally uh, or come into it. And that's where all of my, you know, working with me shortcuts this process because I've done all of that thinking for you and I can tell you what it is. But um, if you started there, you get there eventually. So I wouldn't 
stress too much. And I think, Sophie, you already are thinking about your audiences. So you're already going to be doing great stuff. I wouldn't worry too much. Well, fingers crossed. I'm sure every, anyone can tell me if I'm not anyway. I'm always, always open to receive feedback. <laughs> so um, if someone, anyone who's listened to this, if they now want to go sit down and sort of rewrite their standard slide deck that they have and rewrite the presentation a little bit, because I, I know I did for my PhD, I kind of had my standard slide deck and just kind of updated a couple things every time I had to do a talk. What are, say, the one or two things you would remind people to do as they sit down to re- rewrite that talk that they routinely give? Uh, if you're rewriting a talk that you routinely give, audience first. So double check the assumption that the talk you gave two weeks ago uh, and that worked for that audience, double check that it's going to work for this audience. And maybe it will, maybe it'll be absolutely fine. But if it is demonstrably different or you go, oh, actually, this they, they don't care so much about this methodology, they care more, more about this thing or this bigger picture over here is going to be more useful or interesting for them than this thing over there. So just check that assumption that every audience is going to enjoy the talk in the same way because that's not true. Um, and that will give you a guide on what things need changed and what don't for this particular one coming up. The other one with the slides is, is the same thing. Go through the slide deck and ask yourself, what's the point of this slide? Mm-hmm. What is it doing <laughs> for my audience? What is it making them think about? What information is it giving them? Is it giving them the same information I'm going to tell them, in which case it's probably a bit redundant? Is it, you know, what's the point I'm making here? And you want each slide has to, wants to have one clear focus on one clear point one of the big advantages of very simple slides um is that they're much easier to reuse Mm -hmm. so i have incredibly simple slides with little pictures on really um so i have a picture of a heart and that slide gets used when i'm talking about emotional engagement when i'm talking about emotional projection when i'm talking about sometimes visuals and what visuals make you think of um, so I can use it in a whole bunch of different places and I just have to copy and paste it. If I've got lots of bullet points and lots of text on there, that's much more stuff to change if I want to use the slide to talk about something slightly different than I did when I first created right, it. Right, yeah. So very simple slides that have one point at a time. It also means then you, if you don't want a certain point in your slide talk, but you do want the previous point, you just move the previous slide across. You don't have to move the whole slide and then cut stuff and move things around. So having each slide make one point allows you to build a much more, um, God, what's the word? Like, like Lego bricks. <laughs> like you build them up, you rearrange them and, um, there's a word yeah, for it. I know. I, I'm like, sta- to... not standardized, but like where you, anyway, you, you build a bunch of different content blocks or bits. So I have a bit where I talk about emotional engagement. That's like three sides long. And if I want to put that in a talk, I just move those slides across and put them in. If I want to talk about stories, I move that across, put that in. So content blocks, um, if you can do that rather than doing here's one slide that has loads of different content on it and and to do some of that content, not all of it, I'd have to change the slide. If you make it simpler and move each point onto its own slide, you can rearrange and build talks much easier and much more efficiently. So that you've got, you end up with a bunch of Lego bricks, right? And you can build any talk you like out of them. And each talk is going to be different because you use a slightly different configuration of bricks is how I think about talks. Um, and what you want to be able to to do is build have each of those bricks as swap in and swap outable as you can um, so that you can build talks that are flexible to your audience and flexible to 
your content and flexible to your time, right? If your standard talk is 20 minutes long and you get asked to do a three minute talk, you can't just reuse that slide deck, Yeah. but you could reuse two or three slides from it. That will help you build your slides much more efficiently. And it's the thing that I suggest folk do is at the start of a PhD, if you go in with this idea that my goal when I'm presenting is to build a bunch of content blocks that I can interchange as I go through this talk and every now and then you build a new blog. And you get better and better at telling the blocks you use regularly, right? Those become really slick and you're really good at talking about them. Uh, but each talk can still be flexible and still adjust a little bit here and there to different audiences in different contexts. And that's much more efficient than building a talk from scratch every time, which is a pain and often often oh. researchers don't have the time for that. No. But it lets you give a more tailored talk rather than just recycling exactly the same thing. Yeah, I'm now thinking I should do that for like the SciComm career type talks that I do. Because uh, I feel like I create them from scratch every time, which is not very time efficient. No, and you will, and you will do. And yet, within that, there'll be bits that you say almost exactly the same every time. Yeah. Yeah. So you've already yeah. got blocks. You just need to think about them as as kind of having this bigger library of things you can pull in to make slightly different, more focused talks. Um, Absolutely. I think it's a it's a useful framing for thinking about how we build presentations, and it's how I do it. My talks are fairly standardized. You know, if somebody wants to do five minutes on storytelling, I pick out. Yeah, something to add to my to-do list, I think, that would be really useful. So my final question is something completely different, um, just a little random thing that I like to ask at the end of every interview I do. Um, it's just another, another little passion of mine. So the final question is, um, where would you recommend traveling to and exploring and why? Oh, good question. Where would I recommend traveling to and exploring to and why? I'm just going to go with the first thing that popped into my head. It's um, always a good one. Yeah. A couple of years ago, we went on holiday to Robin Hood's Bay, which is Ooh. on the northeast coast of the of England uh, in Yorkshire. It's a tiny little sort of fishing village with quite a lot of like piratey smugglery overtones. Um but it's beautiful. It's stunning. When we went which out of season, it was really quiet. We got a lovely little cottage. It was great. There were some lovely walks, which is stuff that I really like doing, exploring the countryside along the cliffs and things. But there was also uh, loads of fossils in the rocks on the beach. Amazing. And we could wander along the beach and you see there's lots of ammonites and you could see them and go, oh, that's really cool. And it's this and that. And I, we found a couple of tiny ones that had come loose and we, we kind of brought home. So uh, that was a really cool place to go and explore. Nice. Well, Thank you so much for giving up all your time, sharing so many amazing tips with us. And I think I, I probably need to invite you back on because I plan to talk to you about body language and how you can use your voice and online presenting. So there's loads more I think we could dive into, but maybe you can tell people how they can work with you and how you can help them as well. Yes, of course. Um, if you if you want to get in touch with me, I'm on I'm on the Twitters at D underscore Yellowlees um and on linkedin as well it's just duncan yellowlees one of the handy things about having a, a unique name is if you google me you will find me yeah. um <laughs> uh, uh, but my website is www.duncanyellowlees.com and on there you can find information about all the sort of workshops and courses that i do you can also get my email address you can contact me that way do get in touch i'm really happy to chat about any more of this sorts of stuff and uh yeah keep an eye out because i'm in the process of building quite an exciting kind of community space for researchers to practice this stuff and meet up with other people who care about it which is, is very cool and that's in the works hopefully coming soon that yeah, sounds keep an eye on that. amazing 
well yeah thank you so much for coming and giving up your time and yeah I'll, I'm probably going to be picking your brain about things for a while to come yet um, so yeah hopefully that won't be too That's annoying right. no totally please do Sophie <laughs> and uh, anytime I'm very happy to come back on and chit chat as we have done for two hours I know how I'm going to cut this down I, I have no idea <laughs> <laughs> turn it into two podcasts you'll be fine um but uh, yeah very happy to come on and chat about other bits and pieces or whatever and you're you know if you're panicking about a presentation drop me a message and I'll see if I can help I'm really good at pep talks amazing I need a pep talk every time I do one so okay well you've just like I can't think of the phrase now but um yeah you're, you're gonna meet your match. <laughs> <laughs> um my other final request is a bit of a strange one but i never know how to wrap the end of these things up and i feel as like you gave us such an incredible introduction maybe there's an incredible outro that you can create incredible outro we could try an incredible outro it'll be in a totally different accent i'm sure because i can't remember <laughs> what i did it's just, it's probably offensive to somebody somewhere accent um but we'll see what i've got so uh, we could go kind of Looney Tunes on it, right? So, and that's all, folks. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Psychom Toolkit podcast today with your host, Sophie Arthur, and your guest, Duncan Yellowlees. If you have any questions, get in touch. Hit subscribe and tell us on the social medias if you liked it. Tell people about us. Give us a review on the podcast places where you find all of your podcasts. Five stars is great. Don't we just deserve it? Uh, and other than that, we shall see you next week, but not me, because I'm Duncan. Sophie will see you next week, and all will be well. I hope you have a lovely time. Enjoy yourselves. Toodaloo! Amazing. Thank I you do. so much. Got a bit silly at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> not sure where Toodaloo came from. I always feel a little bit weird about hopping back on as soon as I kind of round up and finish off the main chunk of each of the episodes and tagging this little bit on the end. But I especially feel weird about it today because I really don't think I can follow that outro by Duncan. But I wanted to say a huge thank you to Duncan once again for all the incredible advice, tips and perspectives, and of course your time for sharing all of that with us. But as always, we have arrived at the DIY section of the podcast. This is the part where I give you a resource, tool or exercise that you can go and do right now to continue to build up your science communication confidence. And obviously today that is talking about presentation skills. So based on everything that Duncan and I have talked about in the episode, there are two things that I think would be a really good starting point. And the first is to start creating your customizable slide deck. So that's when we were talking about having those slide blocks that you could chop and change and mix and match together to create each presentation that you do. It's actually been a little bit of a coincidence that this week, as I've been editing this episode about presentation skills, I also have three presentations of my own to prepare. So I've actually been using some of these tips myself while I've been preparing for those. All three presentations are about science communication, getting into science communication, but they're all different lengths and also have slightly different angles and slightly different audiences. But yeah, as I've been prepping and writing them out, a lot of those slides I'm going to use are very similar and they keep popping up time and time again in each of those presentations. So I have been creating these slide blocks myself and it's been so useful because I can literally just lift it from one presentation and drop it into another one.
So yeah, start to build your own slide deck that you can use to add to and take bits from every time you are creating a presentation. The second exercise or resource is going to help you find that story in your research. So I have created a little exercise resource sheet that will first of all help you to work out who your hero, your villain and your magical helper is within your research story. But then there's also a very rough graphic of a mountain. So this mountain represents your entire research story and that journey that you go on from beginning to end. And as we were talking about with Duncan, there are different struggles or problems or challenges that pop up along the way. And that creates that conflict, that drama, those hooks that are going to keep your audience interested and engaged. So I wanted you to use this worksheet or adapt it to something similar to start mapping out how your research fits onto this story structure. And that then in turn will help you to form your actual presentation. Don't leave it until the next time you have a presentation to do to start thinking about all of this. Start thinking about it now and it will make it so much easier when you have to pull those slides together to deliver your next seminar, career talk, whatever it might be. And crucially then, that will give you more time for practicing rather than prepping. As always, you will be able to get the resources as well as transcripts and show notes from this episode and all the other episodes from the podcast on my website. That's sofetalkscience.com forward slash psychom toolkit. And as I said, I really don't think I can follow the outro that Duncan did. So I'm just going to keep this simple this time. So remember, you can subscribe to the podcast. You can rate and review the podcast. You can get in touch with us on social media. I'm at soph.talks.science and you can find the podcast at Psycom Toolkit. Please do get in touch if you have any questions about anything you've heard today in this episode or if you have any ideas for future episode topics as well. And of course, if you are looking to level up your presentation skills, make sure you're following Duncan. He shares tips every week that are just amazing. They get you thinking about presentations in a completely different way. I almost now feel excited to do my next presentation, which is something I would never have thought I would have ever said. And if you have the chance to go along to one of his training sessions, please do because it will be amazing. But until next time, everyone, keep bringing science stories to life and I will see you in the next episode. Toodaloo!